Welcome to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. Brought to you by Elite Consulting Partners, it's the only podcast offering unfiltered guidance and direct advice for all things concerning financial advisors, RIAs, and the practitioners in the wealth management business. Learn more and subscribe today at EliteConsultingPartners.com slash podcast. And now, here's your host, Frank LaRosa. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. I am your host, Frank LaRosa. And uh, once again, joined here with a great guest, a friend of mine, someone that we've been doing business with, someone that I think is a great leader in the industry. And I always have uh, full confidence when I uh, introduce a client to him, Nate Lenz, who's the uh, founder of Concurrent Advisors. How you doing, Nate? Hey, Frank. Happy to be here, man. Appreciate you having me on. Awesome. I, I say the founder of Concurrent, but you do a lot of things. Uh, you're chief bottle washer. You you get into the mix. You're you're part of transitions. Uh, you work. You know you 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 help build the offices for advisors. You, you do all sorts of stuff. So um, you got to so wear a lot of hats. Sort of covers everything. You got to wear a lot of hats. Um, I'm a big believer too in leading from the front. And so you know, there's no job uh, too small we can't lend a hand on. But you know, I think a lot's changed. I think we originally started working together back in, you know, 2017 or so, kind of in the early days of concurrent. And at that point, you know, we had a vision. Uh, we had, uh, you know, a couple of employees and we were to, to wear a lot of hats today. You know, we're upwards of, uh, 30 home office employees supporting our team. So a little less bottle washing, but, uh, we try to instill that in our culture, the willingness to, uh, to jump in any, anywhere we need to, to make sure that that experience is, it's exactly what the advisor expects. Yeah, awesome. So, um, you know, for so for our my listeners that are new, uh, this is uh, you know advisor talk. So it's just a conversation with two guys talking shop, learning a little bit about a new company that someone may may or may not know about, and why it might be a good option for for the right kind of advisor if you are the right kind of advisor. So um, we're going to get into it a little bit here. Uh, so Nate, go into maybe just talk a little bit about your background because. I work with a lot of um, founders and of different broker, you know, independent broker dealers and and producer groups, OSJs of the like. And your your background's a little bit a little bit different, right? You and so I think it's makes it interesting and brings from what I've seen when you're talking with with practitioners and they're looking to stand up their own firm, you sort of bring a different lens to it, which is a really good business lens that. Uh, they don't always get. So talk about your background and then and then where did concurrent come from? Absolutely, uh, Frank. So, you know, it, I think to your point, uh, a little bit of a different background than most OSJs or RIAs that are out there in the industry. Um, I grew up um, within the Raymond James home office. I had an opportunity very early in my career to become part of what was their internal M&A consulting group succession planning and acquisitions that was covering all of the independent channels within Raymond James. Um, so their independent broker-dealer channel, their RIA custody channel, correspondent clearing, and their bank channel. And, you know, uh, uh, frankly, there's not a whole lot of people that do that in the space, right? There's a few of the major consulting firms, the FP Transitions, the SRGs, then you have the higher-end kind of RIA consultancies like the DeVoe and companies or the Echelons. But when it comes to kind of blocking and tackling um you know, solo practitioner, advisor, small team, M&A in the independent space, really being able to to develop a deep understanding of that early on, I think is what has allowed us to take a different perspective with teams. And, you know, 
the lens that we tend to look at things through is one of enterprise value, right? Because when you go independent, um, not only do you own the clients, but you own the business itself. You can build enterprise value in that business. And we see a big part of our role is to help firms um, grow that value, protect that value through things like business continuity planning, succession planning, and then ultimately realize that value, you know, if and when it makes sense. And so obviously M&A has been a hot topic. There's been a tremendous amount of it. You've seen a lot of new entrants into this space, whether it be private equity. And I know that's on the agenda for later, but that was my, my background was in M&A. And actually when we, when I left Raymond James, it was not to start concurrent, right? We actually started a M&A consulting business. I was called INA Consulting. You know, surprisingly enough, all of our initial clients were Raymond James firms because <laughs> that's where the team's work there. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we had done while at Ray J was we built out a consulting program called Enterprise Consulting. And the whole thesis behind it was that advisors are going to continue to move from the wirehouse to independent channels. You know, most of those advisors, there's tremendous benefits to succession planning, right? In the independent space. So if you look at the aging demographics and you look at this movement to independence, we saw that that's ultimately, you know, where the puck is going. And so we built out a program within Ray J to help firms that wanted to grow through sub acquisitions and recruiting. And really recruiting became kind of a second piece of it because what we found is that, you know, advisors that want to retire in three to five years, you know, three to five years would go by and they want to retire in three to five years, right? Just it continues forward. So being able to have a, a soft landing for them where you can, you know, begin to, whether it was converting from commission to fee, that, that was, you know, a hot topic in, you know, the call it the mid 2000s, right? Or if it was, you know, looking to find ways to further institutionalize the business, outsource money management, whatever it might be. The idea was if we can create a recruiting model that allows us to go get some of those wirehouse guys, move them into the independent space, give them flexibility, which I think is the greatest advantage to retiring in the independent space, um, talk through the financial benefits to them, but then really give them, you know, an option and, and a security net that, Hey, when they are ready to retire, they've got the best fit. They're able to maximize the enterprise value they can build there. And so that led us to develop this consulting program. So we would go find these firms around the country that had an appetite to do it. Sometimes it was a former complex manager with a producing team. Sometimes it was an ensemble practice that was looking to leverage their existing infrastructure to go out and recruit. But we would find these market leaders. And then what we would do is we would help them articulate their value proposition, package it. We become their outsourced business development and M&A team. And we did that within Ray J. So when we left... Ray J to start INA consulting, right? That was essentially our value prop. It was, hey, let's go, you know, we want to go a hundred miles deep with a select group of firms really acting in that capacity. And what we noticed pretty early on in that process was that, you know, all these firms were really running the same economic model. They were, they had different expertise. Some were really strong operationally. Some were strong investments. Some were strong at planning, but they were all subscale. Right. Even at two, three, five million dollars in revenue for them to really invest in the infrastructure they need to do to, to recruit in a repeatable manner would have been cost prohibitive, building out compliance teams and transition teams. And this is doing it in the OSJ framework where the tech stack and all the middle office services already taken care of for you. Right. Um, so, so from our perspective, we brought those teams together. And, and at this point in time, I, I know we had a, there was a wealthmanagement.com article that had a picture of the, of the Winnebago, the RV that we had. Uh, my partner 
Steele and I, uh, when we started the consulting business, uh, we ended up buying a, uh, a, a 2000 uh, Ford E350 Class C RV. We drove it to a number of our clients' offices, houses, kind of up and down the eastern seaboard on a couple of trips. So there's a you know a little bit of a fun origin story there. And uh, but long story short, we brought a group of our clients together and we presented this idea that was originally called the superstructure, which was, hey, you're going to maintain your separate brand identity. We're going to jointly invest in a shared infrastructure. We're going to scale the scalable. We're going to go out and get things that, again, are not necessarily differentiating for your individual firm, but are mission critical in supporting an advisor's move to independence. And, at the, and because of that, right, the synergies that we can create there will help you all achieve your individual goals. And so that kind of founding philosophy, I think, has permeated our organization from the beginning which is, you know, we believe in independence first and foremost, and we're huge advocates of it, no matter kind of where on the affiliation spectrum you land, IBD, hybrid, full RIA, whatever that might be, taking ownership of your business is first and foremost. We believe that the future of this business is independent, right? Um, we believe that ultimately it's advisor centric. You see a lot of the aggregators out there that are, that are, you know, proponents of disintermediating the advisor from the client. Right, moving to more standardization, clients are clients of the firm. I actually think the biggest growth driver we have is the individual expertise, the niches that our advisors serve. So, so from our perspective, we wanted to really walk that fine line of providing full support, but still maintaining, you know, each firm's individual identity and what truly makes them unique, right? And putting that on a pedestal. So, uh, all while doing it in a wrapper of collaboration. So that's really where it started. It kind of started as this confederacy right, of different teams around the country coming together. We started to build out the infrastructure with more of the table stakes functions. So the compliance team, the transitions team, and so forth. And then as we continued to grow and scale the business, that's when we really began to invest in, in more value add resources. So things like our financial planning team, our virtual admin team, practice management functions. And from the beginning, we always had a very deep bench in business consulting, given that's where a lot of our backgrounds came from. So it really grew and evolved uh, from there, starting in the Winnebago. We went through our sheriff's great knees and bloody elbows along the way, right? There were, there were nine firms at the table when we started and it went from nine to eight, eight to five. Two years later, we bought out two of the original partners that were in concurrent. You know, we've, we've dealt with the issues of, Hey, I want to join the country club, but I don't play tennis. So I don't want to pay for the tennis courts. You know, working through all the pieces here has been a, has been an adventure, but I think it's, it's, it's what's led to the foundation that we now have today and that we've been able to, I think, successfully, you know, add advisors to and, and recruit to. And I think that's one of the, you know, is that my experience with working with you with some of our clients was that the business side that you brought to the table in terms of helping them many of the, because most of them are, are, are breakaway advisors, but really helping them become business owners, right. And starting to see things through the lens of a business owner, not a practitioner. And so I always thought that that was really unique for, for you all. Talk about, I'm going to shift gears for a second. And, and I wrote something down about um, flexibility in retirement. So I want, I want to come back to that for a second. But in your office in, your office in Florida, uh, on the wall is, um, I think the quote is, fine lemons or something like look, that. Look for, look for lemons. Look for the... lemons, right. Look for lemons. 
Uh, so for those of you who don't know, when you walk into his room, conference room, when you walk into the main uh, main area, there's a conference room right off the lobby area, and there's a huge, like neon sign, like that says "Look for lemons or find lemons," right? And it's a big, big lemon. Um, what does that What does that mean? It's interesting. So it's a mantra that we adopted a, a few years ago, um, and it really you know, came from our transitions team. Um, but it, it has application across the board. And, you know, the, when we talk to advisors, the one thing that we can guarantee is that in any transition, something's going to go wrong, right? Um, at some point, probably multiple things are going to go wrong. Well, let's just say not go wrong, but maybe not go the way you want them to go, right? It all depends on where expectations are. Exactly. A whole, we, right. can, we can really unpeel that. that um, exactly. Right, things, but there will be things that are not expected, right? Or things that are taking longer than necessary or, you know, it, and so from our perspective, we look at those as opportunities, right? We call them lemons. And it's like, look, in this industry, we've seen too many times, right? Especially at the larger broker dealers, you know, wirehouses and so forth, where a lot of our advisors came from that, you know, if something goes wrong, the buck is always passed. It's always, you know, someone else's fault. There's an excuse. You know, we want to practice extreme ownership, right? Um, and I know you, you read a ton, Frank. I'm a big fan of like the Jocko Willick stuff and some of the, so, but we, we practice extreme ownership where if you see an opportunity like that, something goes wrong, something happens that's unexpected. Our team is, you know, uh, I think are, have done a great job of this. It's, it's, you know, grab hold of it, own it, see it to fruition, make sure it gets solved. You know, let's move mountains to do it because you build tremendous amount of goodwill, right? That's such a critical juncture, the transition. And if we can be the firm that, that fixes things, right? For these guys and, and ultimately helps them continue to, you know, move forward, stay in front of their clients. That's us doing our job. And, and that's what we want to be known for. So that's where, you know, it's, it's very hard for me every time we say it to avoid saying make lemonade. Right. <laughs> but, but the concept behind it is, Hey, let's, let's take hold of those opportunities. Let's, you know, let's really go deep and make sure we solve the problem. Let's not let go of it until it is solved. Um, and, and in doing so, Nothing's going to go smoothly. Nothing's going to go perfectly. But at the same time, we can have very successful transitions. And that's what we've seen. We've had, you know, our firms on average move over 93% of their assets within the first year. And that's coming from non-protocol firms, protocol firms. That's across the board, right? Other independents. So it's, um, we think that that mantra has, uh, has definitely helped us. And it's a nice reminder when you walk in the front and see it on the wall. You gave me a, uh, a stat for a client that we just moved onto your platform. And he's only really been there for for a short period of time. And you, you said it was a ninety two percent of his assets. Yep, it, it was a protocol transition. Came from Wells Fargo. Um, he's done a phenomenal job um, so far out of the gate. We actually spent a week here in our office um, around a uh, Bruce Springsteen concert. He's a big fan, and he kicked off his U.S. tour here in Tampa. So we use that as an opportunity to you know have him sit you know, in the trenches here with our transitions team. And, and we were able to make some significant headway in getting the assets moved. Cool. Yeah. So uh, that, that, that's the stuff that we like to hear. So talk about, you You made a comment. I'm just curious what you mean by this. You made a comment about flexibility in retirement, right? Yeah. Well, from your perspective, what does that mean? Yeah. So, you know, when you look at, and, and again, Specifically, in the context of that conversation, sitting inside of Raymond James, and now even after launching Concurrent, this was back in 2016, 
our primary focus historically, right, operating as an OSJ on the RayJ platform was recruiting breakaway advisors. So we were almost exclusively focused on the wirehouses, Edward Jones, some of the regional firms um, as our primary source of opportunities. When you're looking at retirement in a wirehouse, right, um, ultimately, you're really beholden to the sunset package that they have in place, right? Some firms have gotten more competitive, some have gotten less, but whether it's the Morgan Stanley Former Financial Advisor Program, the UBS Alpha Program, the Merrill Lynch CTP, whatever it might be, it's prescriptive as to here's how you do it. Here's the length of time you need to be in a joint production agreement. Here's the valuation, right? That's placed on the book and it's based on five factors, assets, fee-based assets, right? All these different pieces. And essentially at that point, they're traditionally structured as a split of the grid over a period of time where you're beholden to what that junior advisor does with it, you know, post-sale. And typically you're dropping your license immediately upon retirement, right? The independence phase, what's great about it is, you know, you've got a little bit of a blank sheet of paper. There are some regulatory pieces that we need to take consideration of, right? Like FINRA 2040 to make sure that they're not sharing in commissions for more than five years post-dropping their license. But because you don't, there's no mandate that they drop their license upon sale, you can get very creative in the deal structure. And so a lot of our initial conversations with advisors that are thinking about selling their business or thinking about succession planning is it's much more focused around like how do you see your role evolving? What elements of the business do you really enjoy, right? Because you could put a deal in place where ultimately you're buying, you know, a portion of the business up front. They're staying on for some period of time, two, three, five years, whatever that might be. They're focusing on the stuff that they really enjoy within the business. We're able to take some of those other pieces off of their plate, right? We're able to really help them sprint through the finish line from a growth standpoint. And we can then choose that, hey, when they when they retire, do they want to drop their license? They want to stay on in a consulting agreement. It can take a lot of different shapes and sizes. And I think the hardest part of succession planning in our space is that, you know, these advisors have done this for 30 years, right? Their clients are some of their best friends. They enjoy coming in every day. So this idea of a hard stop, walk away, is not all that attractive. And not to mention, there's a lot more flexibility in deal structure, right? On our side. So not only, you know, on the wirehouse side, it's tax and ordinary income prescriptive. In the independent space, right? They own an asset. They can sell that asset. There's the potential to get long-term cap gains on a large portion of that sale. We also can structure the deal based on what their liquidity needs are. If they want more guaranteed dollars up front, right? Um, maybe there's a little bit of a lower valuation that's part of the negotiation. If they're looking for a longer stream and annuitized stream of payments, right? On a promissory note, that's possible. I think there's a whole lot more financing solutions in the independent space now, uh, both on the debt and equity capital side, which has grown significantly since my time at Ray J when it was pretty much broker dealer financing and then live oak bank. Tremendous. Now there's a, a tremendous amount of folks focusing on this space. And it's because if you look at this business, right? What it is, is it's, it's recurring cash flow, right? With embedded growth. It's a growth stock with high dividends, right? That's what these businesses are. And the clients are tremendously sticky, especially if you do the transition right. So when I talk about flexibility, it's really going from being in a pretty small box, right? At one of the wirehouse firms and arguably getting much less than what the business itself is actually worth versus open architecture and being able to, I think most importantly, really fit what the advisor is looking to accomplish through succession. There's really a process as opposed to an event like it is on the, on the wirehouse side. Right. I think a lot of deals fall apart because 
the buyer is trying to force the seller out before they're emotionally ready. Right. You know, they may be financially ready and they may, you know, they're, you know, f- but what I have found is uh, as an advisor gets older and they start to have a team around them and they start to, uh, all of a sudden they start thinking better and they start being more efficient and all of a sudden, and then they're like, wait a minute, this is a pretty good deal here. Like, I'm not working as hard as I used to work. I have this young guy that's handling all my clients and all this, and I'm making almost as much money as I've ever made. Uh, I'm not sure I want to retire right now. And so I, you know, I think that if you're if you're a buyer out there, you need to go into the, those those um, discussions with the idea that to Nate's point, like you're asking someone that's been doing this her whole life for the most part, their whole business life to change who they are, right? Like in an instant. And and I've seen so many advisors that say they want to retire and they end up not retiring or maybe not, they don't retire for many, many years later. And, and then the buyers are shocked that the deal fell apart, right? Like, well, because you told the guy that he had 60 days left in his career and to, you know, like that's not what he wanted to hear. And, and, and he woke up, he woke up on you know 20 days 20 days out and realized uh I don't want to this is not what I'm looking for so you're definitely on that front though Frank real quick to wrap that up you are threading the needle a little bit as a buyer right because you want to create enough flexibility for the seller to keep them comfortable but you also you want to be very deliberate in how you're defining the role how you're defining that timeline right because at the end of the day, you could have the opposite issue, which is they never leave, right? It's too easy and they're going to continue to sit in the seat. So there's definitely some nuance to when you're putting a deal in st- structure in place of making sure that, you know, you're listening, right, to the seller and what they're trying to accomplish. You're tailoring it, but you're, you know, again, you're also mindful of your business goals and objectives and making sure that, and look, there's a lot of deals that we see where the seller really does stay on beyond the final sale, but they might be operating in a business development capacity, right? They can still carry the business card. They can still come in occasionally. And that's a situation where we pay them for the book that they've built, but then give them ongoing, you know, revenue participation, right? On new assets they refer to the firm. And what we see is that, you know, by it's, it's really just setting very clear expectations that, Hey, up until this point, this is the role and responsibility. We're methodical in the transition beyond that point. Here's your ongoing role. And what we see is that, you know, a lot of times that'll tail off, right? They'll find other interests, but it's just to your point, it's not a hard stop. You don't get that shock factor that blows the deal up. Um, you're soft landing. That's a great point. Speaking of uh, buyers and sellers, um, you have an interesting relationship with uh, with Merchant. Can you talk a little bit about how, not necessarily how it how it evolved? I don't. I don't think you know people know who Merchant is and and they they see what they're doing, but really talk about how that partnership has helped concurrent and how it how it helps currently helps um, advisors that are practitioners that are at concurrent absolutely so yeah the relationship with merchant we closed the deal with them at the end of 2020 but it really started uh, a couple of years prior and merchant owns a minority non-control stake in concurrent and really i think 
what attracted us to Merchant, right? Because there's no shortage of private equity firms, um, strategic buyers out there that are looking to to acquire, right? Um, there's no shortage of it. What was really attractive to us about Merchant, first and foremost, was their people, right? And I think that's where we've gotten the most value. And that's actually evolved. And we can talk about how it's evolved over the last couple of years. But, you know, guys like Rick D'Amico and Tim Bello and Brian Staff, David Morazic, these guys were all operators, right? Matt Breaker spent instrumentally sits on our advisory board from United Capital. You know, Morazic was at Focus Financial, Brian Staff ran PKS, right? So you've got this great group of, of seasoned operators that can bring a tremendous amount of strategic value to the table. The minority non-control piece is also important. Right. Cause it very much aligned going back to our origin story. This idea that we want to walk that fine line, maintain full independence, autonomy, identity. Right. But at the same time, you know, be intentional about how we're scaling the scalable. I, they have a very similar mindset in that they don't want to turn entrepreneurs into employees. That's why they don't take control like stakes. Right. They back entrepreneurs who they believe in, who they believe they can add strategic value to. And then bring capital behind it, right? To pour gasoline on that fire from a growth standpoint. And that's really what we saw in the relationship with them, right? Uh, I think the last piece is, you know, it's permanent capital. Um, so, you know, it's easy to put them in the bucket of private equity, right? That's how it's defined, but that's not how they're set up, right? They're set up at, it's not a, it's not a fund where there's a, a shot clock on the money, uh, and a need to, Ultimately, to realize the, the benefit of the investors, it's set up as a private investment partnership, a long-term operating business. And so the patience of the capital, um, the willingness to back us, right, and allow us to remain entrepreneurial uh, with the minority stake and the people were were the, the huge deciding factors in, in that relationship. Um, and what it's done for us, so, you know, Merchant acquired a stake in us uh, called the end of 2020. And then what we created in partnership with them was, in my opinion, a really unique structure um, where we take minority non-controlling stakes in our underlying advisory practices. So think the 100, 200, $300 million practice that's sitting out there that wouldn't otherwise be able to attract the attention of an institutional buyer. We're able to sub-deploy merchants' capital by investing in their businesses, but still giving them the firepower that comes with having a partner like Merchant. So you ask, like, what do they do for our underlying teams? You know, the big, the big answers are capital, right? And MA. So a lot of our firms are engaged in some ac- sub acquisition, probably not surprising because that's our background. That's, you know, it, it tends to resonate with, with folks that choose to partner with us. So, you know, merchant is instrumental. Let's say we've got a, a deal going on in Dallas right now. It's another RIA, which I think that's a new world that's opened up to us now that we're, we've, you know, made the move. Um, we're in the process of making the move from an OSJ to, you know, our own independent RIA, but we've got an RIA opportunity in Texas. It's about a $400 million business, uh, in assets and, you know, merchants been instrumental in coming in and supporting the deal structure. They're putting up the, the debt, uh, capital because we also own a stake in that, in our, our advisor's business. We're contributing our equity capital uh, portion to that deal. And so it's allowed our teams to be hyper-competitive, but still sit on the same side of the table as the prospective seller. So going back to those psychological factors, if we're able to bring in you know, a team like Merchant's team, guys like Rob Schimmel or, or Gianna that can step in and help you know, structure deals, bring capital to the table, get very creative, it allows our team to stay on the same side of the table as that prospective seller 
which really I think works very well uh, in that process, both in the negotiation and and making sure that you know that they feel very comfortable and heard in in the structure that we're we're putting together. So, so I would say that from from the support standpoint, that's where they've been instrumental, and that's where it, the, our advisors have really felt the effect at the home office level, right at the concurrent level. It's been transformative for our business, right? Prior to the partnership with Merchant, we were like a lot of OSJs out there, right? We were just a collection of disparate parts, a bunch of independent firms around the country flying under their own flags, separate branding. And the relationship was very much that of a vendor, right? It's, you know, what have you done for me lately? What services are being provided? Uh, and you're forced to compete on things like price, right? You're forced to and, and what the way we attacked it was we were going to continue to evolve our service offering, right? So that the value is very apparent. After doing the deal with Merchant and, and beginning to roll out our partnership model, where now we invest in our underlying firms, they get equity in cash and they get equity in us, right? So there's this common currency. What we found is that really aligned us as partners and we're all playing towards this end goal, right? Because the purpose of that minority investment is that down the road, because they own equity in us, right? There's benefit there, but they also have optionality to sell alongside of us into any future monetization event and to get the benefit of the multiple expansion that comes along with that, right? If an individual practice sells at five to seven times EBITDA, but a firm of our size, call it six, seven, eight billion, right? Might sell at 15, 16, 17 times EBITDA. How do we find a way for them to harness that multiple expansion without giving up control? That's the structure that we, you know, work with merchant to put in place. And I think because of that, our incentives with our teams are, are very much aligned. And, you know, the, the focus of our meetings and events and things now are what can we be doing to further enhance our collective enterprise value as a partnership, all while continuing to focus on how do we build our individual businesses and maximize growth at that level. So big transformation, I think that resulted from that of taking our business from a, collection of disparate parts to a, a true partnership. And I do think that's what's fueled our ability to now take this next step in moving from an OSJ to a fully independent hybrid RIA. Yeah, I want to talk about that for a minute. Um, and uh, I want to make sure we have, we have enough time. You know, you're, you're definitely in the mix with a lot of stuff. And one of the questions I was going to ask you, um, I had deals on here because uh, you were talking about that. You know, when you look at 2023 or 2022 and 21 now looking forward a little bit at 20 at 23 and having been involved in in these different types of deals both for for concurrent itself right and then also for your partners how do you see the deals you were talking about valuations right how do you see the deals changing since the you know interest rates spiked Market's gotten a little bit more, um, you know, turbulent, um, and who knows what's going to happen over the next couple of years. Um, how have you seen the deals change in terms of structure? In spite of the macro headwinds, right, which which you just alluded to, you know, I feel like there's still a tremendous amount of optimism in our space, whether it's founded or not, right? Deals are going to continue to get done. I think the, the macro headwinds are balanced by a lot of new entrants into the space. And I think, you know, when we originally did the deal with Merchant back in, in 2020, right? 
I think, you know, you had the established players, right? The established aggregators that were out there, the Focus Financials, the High Tower, which, you know, really shifted their model, I think, in a, in a meaningful way. Uh, that was extremely beneficial to their business. You know, you had the firms like Wealth Enhancement Group, right? Mercer that were out there in more of a traditional roll up, roll up fashion. So, you know, there was a couple of different options. If it was for pure succession purposes, you could sell to the guy down the street, right? You could sell to a roll up, right? Those were kind of the options that were in place. I think what's changed a lot is you're starting to see more and more firms like Merchant and then firms really like us that have uh, continued to iterate the roll-up model forward, which is, all right, we're able to take minority non-controlled stakes. So you still get the upside that would come with selling to a wealth enhancement group that you might get through the equity ownership in that business, but you're still maintaining full control. So I think the what you're seeing is you're seeing more players enter the space you're seeing, I think, more creative models that solve some of the psychological barriers that you mentioned earlier, Frank, which I think is 100% on 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 target there. Um, and so, because you've got these new entrants and you've got these new creative deal structures, I think you're seeing more supply come to the market, so to speak, and demand. Right? You can see more supply, but you can see more demand. I guess too is what you're saying. Absolutely. So I'm going back to my econ degree. Right? You're kind of seeing, you know, the, the both of the curves are shifting upwards. Right? Which is going to, I think, add in um, and maintaining, I think, the uh, the frequency of deals that we've seen over the last couple of years. I know we've had record years the last the last few years. I think we're going to still see, you know, volume, but I actually think the volume is going to tick up more on the on the lower end from an asset standpoint than necessarily the mega deals, right? So I think you'll see a tremendous amount of volume, but I think that bodes well for advisors that are, you know, breaking away or that are making the shift from IBD to RIA. Because, and one thing learned very quickly is that scale is king, right? Um, specifically when you talk about running the hybrid independent RIA. And so I think that you're going to see more and more consolidation in that space, which that, that's what will fuel the deal flow in 2023. Got it. You mentioned a couple of times this move that you're making to your own RIA sort of broker dealer structure away from the OSJ. Uh, can you give us give us some a color on that, and then and then sort of go right into you know how is that going to benefit uh, newer advisors coming to that are looking to join concurrent, and, and what does that ideal advisor look like? Absolutely, I guess the analogy that I'll use is you know and just to kind of walk through the spectrum of options here, right? When you're in a wirehouse, in a lot of cases, that's like living at home with your parents, right? You eat what's in the pantry, uh, right? You've got, you got a curfew. At the end of the day, you know, it's great. You can have a really enjoyable upbringing, but at some point, like you get, you got to move away from home, right? So I think the independent broker dealer space where we really built our business, that's like going out and getting your first apartment. Right. You've got a landlord, you know, you can't go knock walls down or anything like that, but you have a lot more freedom and flexibility, which is great. Right. Living on your own. Like I said before, big advocate of it. I think there's advisors that probably aren't a great fit to make the full move all the way out. So that can be a really great spot. We thrived in that environment. Moving into the independent RIA space, right? That's like going out and, you know, again, getting a raw piece of land, right? You can, you know, there's no zoning restrictions. You can really do whatever you want. So it's not for the faint of heart to go out and do that. We've learned that um, over the last call six or eight months as we've been in the process of, of building and shaping and, and curating this platform. 
But the way to think about it is you've got a whole lot more freedom and flexibility. You can go out and build it the way that, that you want to, right? Um, however, that can be daunting. So where does concurrent come in, right? Think of us as the general contractor, right? We're going to come in and we're going to help you ultimately build that house. You know, maybe you're joining our subdivision. That might be an even, an even better, uh, analogy here because, you know, the difference between the independent broker dealer space and the RIA space. And I think we're making this move in response to, you know, what we're seeing in this industry. You've had this huge wave of technology, right? Um, one of the guys on our team brought up on a, on a call yesterday. If you look at like Michael Kitsey's, you know, technology map from 2017, you know, may have included like 30 different vendors, right? Which is still daunting. You look at his technology map today, right? And I think it's, it's something like 300 different technology vendors. So you've seen this huge wave of advancing technology. Which is beneficial, right? Because a lot of the broker dealer platforms, um, they're, they're using legacy systems. They're building on legacy systems. And, and again, they're, they're large organizations. It's harder for them to, to shift gears than it is when you can be a little bit more nimble, right? And then being independent. And in the tech space, you've also seen the custodians are completely open architecture, right? So we've chosen Fidelity as our primary custodian uh, in the RIA space. They've got open APIs to all the major technology vendors. So it allows it to be mod- modular, right? So we can go out and pick the, the best pieces to curate the, 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 the offering that we're looking to for, for our target client. I would say in addition to that, clients are demanding more objectivity, right? They... They want the advisor to sit on the same side of the table for them. So this move to the RIA space, right, and being able to operate within the fiduciary framework allows our advisors to truly sit on the side, same side of the table as the, as the client, right? They, they are their advocate and they can now leverage competition from different vendors for the client's benefit. And I'll give you an example as we've uh, looked at our securities based lending book, right? Um, you know, what we did is we, we kind of brought that book to the table. Um, we looked at, you know, Fidelity's multi-margin product, U.S. Bank and Goldman Sachs. And essentially we were able to find, you know, again, across our book, where the best fit was for clients, where were the lowest rates going to be, the best terms, the most operational support. So being able to leverage competition for the client's benefit, right? I think is important. Being able to separate advice from product is important which inherently can't be done in the broker dealer space. Um, and so, you know, from our perspective, it was really a response to the client demand. Um, and, and I think, look, products are commoditized, advice isn't. And that's what we keep preaching to our teams, right? And so being able to now sit on the same side of the table, being able to present, it's definitely a different story. It's a different narrative. Um, but we're really excited about the opportunities that open up to us. And we're really excited about the platform that we've constructed. Right. Because as an OSJ at Raymond James, we were really limited to being able to add value on the periphery. Right. We were using Raymond James's technology, Raymond James's middle office service. So where do we add value? We could handle branch level compliance. We could do transitions. And then it was really practice management, business consulting, some of those, like I said, ancillary pieces here, um, which we got really good at and will always be a hallmark of our offering. Now, as we move to the RIA space, right, we are the platform. Right. We are the purveyor of the custodial relationships of the technology stack. We are the support infrastructure. Right. Um, we are the supervisory, you know, piece of this puzzle where we can continue to not necessarily cater to the lowest common denominator, but to work collaboratively with our teams. Um, and I think when you start to look at 
you know, even investment returns over the last, you know, I think over the last 13 years, like 10 or 11 of the last 13 years, we've had positive returns, right? 2022, you know, the worst year in bond performance history. All of a sudden, you know, I think advisors and clients are recognizing that, you know, potentially strategic asset allocation alone may not work, right? So where do we get the value? It's behavioral coaching, it's tax optimization, right? And it's things like alternative investments. So for us, this move represents the chance for us to really fully control the client experience, the advisor experience, staying true to our philosophy, which is it's your brand, it's your business. We're going to support that. We're going to put you up on the pedestal. But now we're going to be able to give you all the best in breed resources, investment solutions, and we'll have full quality control over the support, right? So that you can continue to thrive and focus on moving up that value stack and working with your end client. What is the ideal advisor if, if you know you have a bunch of advisors listening to this podcast? Who is that ideal advisor that you're looking for that you think excels on your on your platform? Absolutely. So I think there's 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 really kind of two. I, I would say there's probably two archetypes, right? Um, the team that we just worked with, right up uh, in your neck of the woods, that came from Wells Fargo, the traditional breakaway advisor. I think is a is a great fit for us, right? That's our core competency is how do we move them out of a wirehouse out of Edward Jones? How do we establish them as an independent firm? We handle everything from marketing, branding, you know, tech setup, office setup. Really, we want to create a lot of the conveniences that they're accustomed to in the wirehouse, but the full economic benefits of independence, right? And so I think advisors that are looking for greater flexibility as to how they operate, that want to take ownership of their business but want support in that process. And then when you layer in our partnership model, right? They want that opportunity to punch above their weight from a value standpoint. They want liquidity opportunities within their business. That is a great archetype for us. And that's really what we built our business on. I think the other archetype for us, and this is a a newer market that is now opened up to us because of this shift to the fully independent hybrid RIA space, uh, is what I'll call the... Some of the single owner OSJs, right? The statistic that's out there is there's $174 billion plus OSJs in the independent broker dealer space, right? At firms like Ray J or LPL or Satera, right? A lot of those firms, right, have similar opportunities that we had, you know, five years ago, which is maybe they've got 20 to 30 advisors. They've got a billion in assets. Um, but at the same time, because their margins are so thin, it's hard for them to truly scale up the support, right? They're forced to compete on cost. They're providing supervision. You know, our model is unique. And, and because we did this, we learned from experience, right? We can come in and really support those OSJs if they desire to take that next step, right? So being able to provide the platform, being able to provide the capital, creating the unique partnership structure underneath it, right? So they're not reinventing the wheel uh, and then bringing them into the collaborative ecosystem that is concurrent, all while allowing them to maintain, you know, their brand identity and autonomy. I think that's a really interesting fit for us. And we've worked with firms like that uh, from a consulting standpoint in the past. Now that we are operating our own RIA platform, we think that, you know, again, that can lead to more of those firms deciding to partner with us so that essentially they can take our playbook and run with it and benefit from our 30 home office employees becoming an extension of their team to raise their advisor experience. 
So if uh, if you're one of those advisors um, and they're interested in learning more, where do they go? How do they how do they connect you? Other than other than reaching out to us, of course, right? But where do they? How do they find out more information on on concurrent? Absolutely. Well, you guys have been great advocates for your teams, and and the, what we love about working with you, Frank and Stacy, and your team is that you know you guys really do truly act as consultants. I know we've had a number of conversations where it's like you know, hey, we think this team might be a fit. They might not. Let's just talk through it, right? So. So, you know, kudos to you guys. Um, I, and I think you guys do a great job because the teams that, you know, we end up being in front of with you, they do really fit our archetypes, right? I would say getting in touch with us, right? We've got our business development team that's led by Steve Bilkey. He was previously at Waddell and Reed, Finet. So number of years in the business, very experienced there. Uh, Nick Klein, uh, is a, a huge part of that team as well. Uh, worked with me at Ray J, also worked in the RIA channel at Ray J. Um, so, you know, the easiest way to get a hold of us is uh through the website and we've got a new website that's going to launch here in the uh in the next week or so um specifically uh, around the ria offering uh it's powered by concurrent.com and you'll see a lot of our teams use that moniker right and that's and again that's that's how we that's where we want to play right our mindset is serving the advisor serves the client right we are meant to run in the background underneath their, you know, local branding. So this idea of being powered by concurrent, the Intel inside sticker is where we, that's our niche. That's where we like to live. So poweredbyconcurrent.com is going to be the, uh, the easiest way to, uh, to get in touch with us. Um, there's also a bunch of information on us there. And, um, you know, I think from, from that point, we can get you connected with our team and we're excited to, uh, you know, let you know a little bit more about who we are and how we might be able to partner. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. Um, and everybody can also, uh, of course, email me at frank at eliteconsultingpartners.com uh, or they can uh, message me on uh, Instagram at franklarosa.elite. Uh, Nate, this was awesome uh, as usual. Um, you know, these conversations that we have are, are super. We could have gone so far down the road with some other things. Uh, we'll probably have to do another one. But this was tremendous. I think great insight into uh, from from a from a practitioner and a and a business consultant's mind, some of the things that that people should be thinking about: how to take your business to the next level, uh, the evolution of sort of the OSJ, where that's going. I think you're you're ahead of the curve there. So, Nate, I appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Absolutely, Frank. Looking forward to the next one. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Advisor Talk with Frank Larosa. If you're looking for more advice or solutions on any topics in the financial services industry, or you just want to subscribe to our podcast, head on over to EliteConsultingPartners.com slash podcasts. Podcasts.